This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Most of us want to live longer, but we want to live a healthy life and avoid the many health problems associated with growing older. Many of the health issues associated with aging have significant morbidity and have the potential to significantly affect our quality of life. So do we know how to avoid these health problems and stay healthy into our older ages? What should we be advising our patients to help them live longer and younger? Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, a preventive cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic. We'll discuss these issues and more in today's edition of Mayo Clinic Talks. Steve, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Chutka. You know, there's a story about a uh, patient who goes in to see a physician and he says, Doc, um, what can I do to live to be 100? And the physician says, well, you need to stop smoking, stop drinking, stop eating rich foods and stop partying all night. The patient said, well, will that let me live to be 100? And the doc said, no, but it'll sure seem like it. <laughs> so, you know, we all want to live longer, but can we assure ourselves that we're going to live healthier? Is this genetics? Is it lifestyle or maybe a combination? What do you think? Well, genetics are important, but lifestyle is much more important. In fact, if you have a good lifestyle, it turns off the bad genes called epigenetics. And we know that from different studies that even people with bad genes, if they have a good lifestyle, they reduce their risk over 80% for cardiac events and major illnesses like diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol. We know cardiovascular disease is leading cause of mortality in the U.S. Do we have the scientific knowledge to potentially change this statistic? You know, we do. The knowledge is there that if we can change our lifestyle significantly, we can certainly reduce the burden of disease that we have in this country, and we can reduce it very, very quickly within months. However, we don't really have the knowledge of how to get everybody in the country to do that. <laughs> That's yeah. the hard part. Yeah, that is an issue. Well, let's talk about some of those key components. What do we need to live a healthy, long life? Let's start with diet. What should we be eating? Or maybe what should we not be eating? Yeah, and that's a great question. I think it's summarized very nicely in a recent study of the paleo diet. You know, paleo diet is, they say, eat like we ate a million years ago. You know, meat and not really many lentils or grains or legumes, but you can have some grains, you know, eat some fish, eat some chicken, maybe some other vegetables and fruit that you can pick off trees and such, and don't eat ultra-processed foods and prolong your life. Mm -hmm. But they analyzed it and found that the thing that really benefited them was not eating the ultra-processed foods. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really benefited them even more was eating more fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, things like that. Mm -hmm. So the point is that the things we should eat are probably the things that we are not eating right now. 60% of our daily calories consumed in this country are ultra processed foods. And that's the things your patients and my patients say, oh, doctor, I never touch these. You know, these are things you buy in the checkout aisle of the grocery store and such, and uh, the chips, the dips, all those things. And unfortunately, we are eating them and we're eating even more of them now after the pandemic. Okay. How about obesity? What do we do with our weight? What do we yes. know about that? Obesity is a great question. And obesity itself, it depends on how you define it. If it's your body mass index versus your abdominal girth, it's different. 
The abdominal girth is the real problem because that means we have a lot of visceral fat, which is very pro-inflammatory. And I don't really worry about a patient's BMI if they're physically fit. The studies have shown if you are active physically and you are, have good cardiovascular fitness, your weight really doesn't matter because you've reduced a lot of the abdominal fat, which is so pro-inflammatory and bothers our tissues and leads to heart disease, cancers, and uh, Alzheimer's. And the location of our adipose tissue is important too. And you can see this in males versus females. Males tend to put it on in the abdomen. Yeah, very true. And it, uh, it's interesting that as our bodies have evolved while we've been on this earth, it used to be that the liver did a lot of the inflammation work. And then as we started to get uh, more advanced bodies, the abdominal fat actually took over some of the inflammatory work and is pro-inflammatory. And that actually bothers our tissues and leads to a disease and earlier death. So the less abdominal fat called visceral fat that you can have, as you say, it's the person with a, a, a big paunch, that's what gets us into trouble. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's turn to exercise. What do you think about that? Many patients don't like the E word. Right. They like a vigorous a leisure activity better. And it doesn't have to be exercise and it doesn't have to be a lot. We know that physical activity falls in two realms. One is being physically active. And the studies have shown that if you can be active for 10 or 15 minutes, especially with intervals where you go harder for say a few seconds, that replicates what we've done on this earth for millions of years. You know, we never got up in the cave in the morning a million years ago and said, honey, I'm gonna jog for an hour and bring you a latte from the local coffee shop. You'd say, I'm gonna leave the cave, try to find some food, not be killed. And you'd see something, you'd chase it. Would you chase it for half an hour? No, of course not. Because anything we want to eat runs faster than we do. And anything that wants to eat us catches us very quickly or we run back in the cave and get away. So we, interval activity is really important and you can do it in just a few minutes. The second activity thing is don't be sedentary. Even if you get up at five o'clock in the morning, go to the gym for an hour, then you sit all day. Like you and I have nice jobs where they pay us to sit then that negates going to the gym for an hour. So get up at least every hour, if not every half hour for a couple of minutes, go to the bathroom on a different floor, go over and see a colleague instead of sending a message or an email to them, maybe go for a, a walk around the building, you know, just something every hour at least. Mm -hmm. Well, most of my patients, I would say are over 65, many in their mid to late seventies and even eighties. And they say, <clears throat> you know, I can't do vigorous exercise. What do we tell them? Yes. Well, vigorous exercise is a relative term. So when you are 65, your vigorous exercise is different than when you're 25, obviously. And I'll tell patients if all they can do is just move their fingers up and down, that's fine with me if that's the most they can do. But uh, just try something and you'll find as you do more of it, you can get better at it and adapt better. The other thing is be safe. Number one, don't hurt yourself. Number two, don't fall. So things like recumbent bikes are wonderful. You're in a chair with the back support. You don't have weight bearing. You have, you can move your arms and your legs. You know, and those are available quite widely now. And, uh, or just sit at home and raise a couple of uh, bags of sugar or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen a fair number of patients. The next year I see them, I asked if there were any health changes and they described now they got bad knee pain or back pain and, uh, Turns out that they probably did a bit too much exercise and pushed themselves too much. Mm -hmm.
What about just walking? Is that good? Walking's great. You know, we are probably some of the best walkers on earth. We're not good runners. You know, as we went from four legs to two legs, we lost about half our speed. And so we're not running an organism. We're better walkers than a deer are. Deer can't walk as far as we can. And so walking is great. You know, 10,000 steps is the ideal. More is even better if you can do it. But after the more and more you do, it kind of levels off the benefit. But clearly just doing something, just the first few thousand, three or 4,000 steps you take a day is the biggest benefit that you get. Yeah. And just about anybody can do some walking. And even if it's slow versus fast, they can pace it based on their health and uh, their joint function. You're right, Daryl. And also just some light weights, body weights. You know, everybody gets out of bed. Everybody has to stand up from the toilet, things like that. Just do some simple activity like that uh, separately. And that can be raising your own body weight can be very effective. So you mentioned weights. What about the difference between aerobic exercise and resistance exercise? Do we need both? Yeah. Well, we, we do need some weights that uh, pulling on the bones with the muscles makes them stronger. That's very important to counter the effects of our osteoporosis as we go through life. But it doesn't have to be heavy, heavy weights. It can be re resistance weights to fatigue. So use lighter weights, more repetitions until your muscles get tired and then rest and start it again. But we don't need to be the strongest animal in the forest. In fact, we are not and we never will be. Mm -hmm. All right, let's turn to some uh, bad lifestyle habits. Which ones should we avoid? Well, right now, there are a couple of them that really stand out. One, of course, is the ultra-processed foods. Two-thirds of our calories in our youth and about 60% in the adults are ultra-processed foods that have huge amounts of fat, huge amounts of sugar in them, lots of calories. Uh, they're very convenient, very satiating. They satisfy us, and they are unfortunately addicting. <laughs> the pizza, the hamburger, the cheeseburger, the fries, the ice cream. That's been shown in addiction studies to actually have addictive qualities that you eat it and you try to stop and you can't and you feel bad. You try to hide it from your spouse, et cetera. So the food is really important. And if we can eat more uh, foods that uh, grow on trees and grow on plants instead of made in a plant, it's better for us. Okay. The other thing that's really happened a lot, Daryl, is the stress You know, the last couple of years. It's been huge uh, as caregivers. You know, we've seen a lot of it. Our, our colleagues and our nurses and such, everyone's been affected and uh, the population's been affected. The millennial population is the most stressed population in the history of our country. And they're the young adults now. And so the, we need to find ways to deal with our stress, which is really important. And it's getting harder and harder. Let's talk about alcohol. I get a few patients who say, Doc, is alcohol good for me or bad for me? And I say, yes, it is. So <laughs> yeah, that's true. Tell me, tell me about alcohol. Yeah. Well, everything, as you know, Daryl, is a bell-shaped curve, our reaction to it. And some people can drink just a tiny amount and they get arrhythmias or irregular heartbeats. It's been shown to be associated with atrial fibrillation, which is very common, especially once you get to age 75 or so the irregular heartbeats from the top chamber of the heart. So we have to be careful with alcohol in that regard. In general, the studies have shown a drink a day, meaning a five ounce wine, a one and a half ounce of 80 proof spirits or a 12 ounce beer actually are okay. It may actually help you a little bit for various reasons, may relax you some, may lower blood pressure a little bit, but more than that, you start to get into trouble. 
So there was a very interesting study about 10 years ago looking at states where you can buy alcohol where they have grocery. They looked at people that bought only wine or only beer and what food they brought with that. And they showed that if you buy a wine, you would also buy extra virgin olive oil and whole grains and things like that. If you bought beer, you tended to buy chips and cheese and all these other uh, snack foods. So it's also the company it keeps. We have to remember that. So it may not be the specific kind of alcohol, but what kind of goes along with it. Exactly. Any specific advantages to red wine? I get a lot of patients asking me that. You know, there was this thing about resveratrol that came out a few years ago saying that was the thing in red wine that was so beneficial and here we'll sell it to you in a pill. And that turned out not to be true. There is some data that red wine may have a little less of the weight associated problems, meaning gaining weight with it. Ethyl alcohol is the compound and it's the same in all these different forms of alcohol. So as long as you keep to a lower amount, like we talked, it doesn't really matter what you drink. Got some patients who have a family history of uh, premature cardiovascular disease. So there appears to be some genetic basis to it. So when we get families like that, let's say there's a coronary disease and a father in his 50s, maybe in his mother in his 60s, do we have knowledge regarding lifestyle changes and pharmacologic therapy, which can overcome these genetic predispositions to disease? Yeah, there's some fascinating studies of one disease we call familial hypercholesterolemia. Those are patients that are born with very high cholesterol on a genetic basis, and it's passed down in families. And the studies have shown that if you have the bad genes or a bad lifestyle or good genes and a good lifestyle, and it's very interesting, they've shown that if the course, the best is having you know, good genes and good lifestyle, the worst is bad genes and bad lifestyle. But if you have bad genes and a good lifestyle, that actually lowers your risk about 80% for having a heart attack, strokes, needing a bypass or a stent. And it's much better to have a bad gene and a good lifestyle than vice versa in most cases. Hmm. Okay. When I see patients who have either hypertension or elevated lipids, my first treatment, unless it's really severe, would not be pharmacologic therapy. I tried for lifestyle changes first. So with hypertension, maybe sodium restriction, exercise, weight loss, lipids, diet, again, weight loss and exercise. But patients say, once they're on pharmacologic therapy, they say, why do I need to keep doing the exercise? Why do I need to keep my diet under control? Because aren't these medicines much stronger than what I've been doing? Mm -hmm. That's a great question and a great point. There's actually a study that looked at about 20,000 patients that were going on a statin. That's the common name for the drugs we use to lower cholesterol. And they did a survey of how they ate. And did they eat healthy, like Mediterranean diet, fruits, vegetables, legumes, things like that, smaller amounts of red meat? And uh, if they ate it or not, uh, how did they turn out? Well, it showed that if they, even if they took the statin and their numbers looked good, meaning their cholesterol came down to better levels, that if they didn't eat healthy, it didn't reduce their heart attack rate, their stroke rate, their death rate, their heart failure rate as much. And that was about 40% of the of the population, meaning the bottom 40% of diet. So the point there is that it, you can't take a pill to negate a lifestyle. You really need to work on both. Okay. This is an interesting issue. And it's uh, maybe sort of related to what we're talking about. I hope so. 
you're in a field where there have been a tremendous number of new medications that are just incredible. You know, the statins have got to be some of the best class of drugs in years, decades. You've got a few other new ones that have come out since. But the adherence rate for some of these medicines is dismal. Studies have shown that maybe up to 40% of patients stop these medicines after a year. So, I mean, we can have great products, but how do we get our patients to continue taking them? Yeah. Boy, great question. We really need to work with our patients, you know, treat each patient individually, as I know you do, and explain to them the importance of taking the medication and how beneficial it is for them. And secondly, if they get muscle aches, which is 90% of the side effects of statins, I say, let me know, send me a portal message, you know, on our electronic health record. You don't need my permission to stop, but just let me know that you did because we can try a different statin for you because the statins are all different. We're all different. They're different in us. So we don't want to just have someone go off, stop a pill and never, you know, don't come back for five years until they have a heart attack. And sometimes we start too overwhelmingly much medication at once. You've seen this, especially in the elderly. And I saw a study recently of people that grow a garden at their home which I think everybody should do because it gives you good food and teaches you a lot of things about life. But 40% of people that start a garden don't do it the second year. They're overwhelmed. They're either overwhelmed with too much plants that they put in the ground and too much fruit and vegetables, or they're overwhelmed with weeds. And they say, I can't handle this. I'm giving up. And that gives us insight into overwhelming patients with, uh, with treatment. Right. And uh, let's start little things and have a relationship over time Instead of meeting someone in 15 minutes and saying, here's the prescription, take this pill, see you in a year. Yeah. And I always just start one at a time, even if they need treatment for their hypertension and their hyperlipidemia. Uh, if they have an adverse effect, you're not going to know which it's from. So I have them start one at a time. And then if they're doing well, then go ahead and add the second one. That's great advice. Well, let's finish up by asking you to summarize our discussion. Can you give maybe two or three key points on what you've talked about regarding how we can keep our patients living younger, longer? Sure. One is that I am a simple-minded cardiologist. I have to put it in a simple way. And I remember it from the points on a compass. North is nutrition. East is exercise. South is obviously smoking and spirits, meaning alcohol but also stress and sleep. Don't forget about those two. And then W is weight. The other thing is nothing we do to change our lifestyle for the better is ever too little and nothing we do is ever too late. I mean, literally one bite difference, getting rid of some processed meat, a hot dog, something like that, replacing it with something healthy like a black bean or a green bean, that has benefit. Reduce your heart attack, your Alzheimer's, your your cancer rate in just a couple of years. And then also activity. Small activity is so much better than none. You know, even doing a you know a few thousand steps a day, that's where you get most bang for your buck. And I ask patients to remember that you know our body has done things on this earth to keep our species and ourselves alive, and we need to trick our body into thinking that we're an active member of the society. We're being vigorously active. We're going out and collecting food to feed our our fellow people in our tribe. And if you sit all day and don't be active, then the body says, Ooh, this guy isn't being very active. Let's get rid of him so we can have the food, more food for the people that are actually younger and more productive. So you got to be smart about it and trick your body into thinking that you're really here and you're helping everybody around you. Mm -hmm. All right. 
Well, we've been discussing how to live younger, longer with preventive cardiologist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky from the Mayo Clinic. Steve, thank you so much for sharing your insight into this interesting topic. Daryl, always great talking to you. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.